0: We are going to be in Judges chapter 17 today, if you'd like to start turning there. Um, There in the bulletin, you do have an outline that's basically just going to follow a handful of verses that we will emphasize in the story of Micah and the Levite and the tribes of Dan. So this is Judges chapter 17. And just remember, this is the most important thing that we're going to do today, is we're going to open up God's word and hear from him directly. There's nothing less powerful about looking at his written word than if he get get this, than if he were to show up and speak to us, which would be awesome, right? That would be so cool. The truth is this is that awesome. This is his true word. He has spoken it to us and we are blessed to have that. So I'm stalling so that you can get excited that this is God's word. Um, as we're waiting for the kids, I think just a short word on um, the 4th of July, because it is, it's a great time for us to appreciate what the Lord's given us in the country that we live in, right? There's much to be appreciative of where we live, even though there is much to bemoan and to worry about, right? There's still much to be thankful for here. And all the things that we, we, we moan and we groan and we complain about are all just evidences to us that this is not our kingdom, It's very important for us to remember that. We are aliens here. As much as you can dress up yesterday in an American flag, wave it around, send off fireworks, all those things are great. There's nothing wrong about being patriotic. We need to remember, one day we will leave this place and enter into a better kingdom under the reign of Christ alone. No Senate, no House of Representatives, no governors, could go on <laughs> but it's a great moment for us to be thankful thank you lord that you've given us such a great country to, to live, live in, in even with, with all the problems. problems but, but thank, thank you, even you even more so that it reminds us that, us that we are we're headed, headed towards, towards a new kingdom where, kingdom, where jesus reigns. reigns and he and reigns, reigns right now right, right? He, is he is reigning, reigning right, right now he is, he is on, on the, the throne, throne.
1: There is, there is nothing that is outside, outside of his sovereign, sovereign rule. Even the things, that things that we would assume, would assume are
0: could, could, they, could only happen if happen God were not in control. He is using those things to the benefit of the, the building, building of his, his kingdom, kingdom here and now. That's exciting. Should, should be exciting be for, us for us this morning, morning right? Okay. okay. Did, you did you get enough time to open up Judges 17? 17? Yes, yes we, we did. did. We are ready. Excellent. Good answer. Let's Let's read. Unlike last, Unlike last week, for one thing, thing we're, we're reading much, much less of a passage, passage than, last than last week, so we're so going to read the entirety, entirety of it. It is it a little, is a little bit, long, bit long, but it's not nearly, nearly as long as long last week, week, so don't know about that. that. But also, this story is not nearly as exciting on surface level as Samson's story, right? Samson's story, right? You, know you know that, that was, the was the peak, peak of like like easy, easy entry-level level excitement for the book of Judges. Was everything, was everything Samson, Samson did. did. Now, now we're going to go, go to this nobody named, named Micah and his, and his Levite, and now, and he, now he hires him to, him to be a priest. And it and it sounds, sounds really boring, but there's but a there's lot boring. here. So let's, so let's read, read this passage, and then and I'll pray and, pray and ask the, the Lord for help, for help as we continue. continue. So this is Judges, Judges chapter 17, starting, starting at verse 1. one. There, was there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah.
1: He said to his mother,
0: the 1100 pieces of, of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also, and also spoke it in, in my ears, behold, the silver was with me. I took, I took it. it. His, his mother, mother said, "Bless me, my, my son by the Lord. Lord. He, restored he restored the, the 1100 pieces, pieces of, silver of silver to his, his mother. mother. And his mother, his mother said, said, I dedicate the silver to the to Lord from my hand for, for my son, son to, make to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when, so when he, he restored money to his, mother, to his mother, his mother, mother 200, 200 pieces of silver, silver and gave and it to the silversmith who, who made, it made it into a carved image, image and a metal image, image, image and was in, was in the, the house, house of Micah. Micah. And the man, and the man of Micah had a shrine, and he made it an ephod in the household gods and ordained and one of his sons who became, who became his priest. His priest. In, those in those days, there was no, no king in Israel. Israel. Everyone who was right in his own eyes. Another young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man he he departed, departed from, the from the town of Bethlehem and Judah, and Judah to, to sojourn, sojourn where he could find a place. And as and he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you where come from? And he, and he said, he I am a Levite, Levite of Bethlehem, and Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm, and I'm going, going to, to sojourn where, where I might find a place. place. Micah, Micah said to him, stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. Levite went in. Levi Levite was content, content to dwell with a man, and the young man, young man became, became to him, him like one of his, one of his sons. sons. And Micah, Micah ordained the Levite, and, and the young, young man became, became his priest, and was in was the, the house of Micah. Micah, Micah said, Now I know that the Lord, Lord will prosper me, because, because I am a Levite as, as priest. priest. In, those in those days, there was, there was no, no king in Israel, in those, those days, days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the, so the people, people of Dan, Dan sent five able men from the, from the whole number of tribes from Zora and from, from Eshtol, Eshto to spy the land to explore it. And they, and they said to them, go, go explore and explore the land. land. And they, and they came to, to the country of the, the house, house of Micah, Micah and, lodged and lodged there. there. When, they when, when they were, they were by, by the house, house of Micah, and they recognized the voice the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He is hired me and I become his priest. And they they said to him, inquire of God, please, we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Pardon me, my microphone fell down. I just realized it. Hello. Now you can hear me. Awesome. Where were we? Seven. Thank you. No, we're not at seven yet. Six. The precept of the priest's under seven seven peace, peace the, journey the journey in which you go, is under, is under the eye of the Lord. Now we at seven. I just, I just need, to need to read that, read again. that again. Seven. <laughs> then the <laughs> five men departed and came and to Laish. And all the people who were there. there. How, they how they lived in security after security the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing, nothing that is in the earth and possessing, possessing wealth. And, and how they were far from Sidonians, had no dealings with anyone.
1: And when they came to their brothers door and Ashkel, their brothers said to them,
0: What do you report? They said, so Arise, let, let us go against them, we have, we have seen the land. land. Behold, Behold, this is very, very good. good. Will you do nothing? Do not, do not be, be slow, slow to go, go to enter in, and, and possess the land. land. As, as soon as you, you go, you will come to an unsuspecting, unsuspecting people. people. The, the land, land, land is spacious, for God has, God has given, given it into your, your hands. hands. A place, A place where, where there is, there is no lack of anything in the earth.
1: So 600 men of the tribe
0: armed with weapons of war set out from Zorah and Eshtael and went up and encamped at the Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, this place is called Mahana Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, house, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? The priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out. They overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? The people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. For so the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him. They came to Laish, two people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. They had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Bethrehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. The people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that your word is available to us. Your spirit is indwelling and changing us, enlightening to us the truth of your word. Lord, help us now as we look to your word to understand the meaning, to realize how we might grow closer to Christ, how we might follow him more faithfully, and what things in our hearts we need to deal with this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So some years ago, I was introduced to the term me monster. Anybody ever hear that before? Me monster? The title applies to the kind of person you run into at a party whose entire conversation revolves around stories of their own accomplishments and their importance. They can't wait to tell you about the big deal they closed at work this past week or how their child is an honor student. And Everything you bring up only serves to remind them of something they did that far exceeds your silly attempt at an interesting story. Everything is about them. While the term was applied to people who can't stop talking about how great they are, all of us actually struggle with the me monster of our fallen nature. Whatever idol we look to for a sense of meaning, a sense of happiness or security, our old sinful nature reaches for whatever it can grab a hold of and attempts to satisfy the me monster. Micah was a me monster. The Levite was a me monster. The Danites were a tribe of me Monsters. Israel was a nation of me Monsters. And they all show us that left to ourselves, we are only able to focus on, work towards, and bring worship to whatever gives us better satisfaction, whatever makes us truly happy. So this week we're going to focus on five statements made by the different me monsters in these two chapters. And the important truth the Lord communicates to us about his presence with his people. Did you catch that last line in verse 18? They set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. God's presence is something we need to deal with in this passage. So the characters in the story do not blatantly embrace the pagan worship of the culture around them as we've seen Israel do in chapters before. If you remember the cycle that we see Israel sinning, and then God giving them over to their enemies, and then they cry out for help, and then God gives them a judge, the judge saves them, and as long as he lives, everything goes fine, right? That whole formula is completely out the window in this story. Instead, these characters are are ones who are actually trying to walk in in the direction of what God actually has for them. But their problem becomes that they are acting as though they are free to set the terms of how they will worship and what they will get for it. This is how I'm going to worship you, Lord, and this is what I expect from you. The title is The Glorious King and the Me Monster. The presence of the glorious King is the remedy to our self-centered ways and our understanding. We find the glory of the King in the gospel of the King, the good news, that though lost in sin, a rebellion against God and His grace, Jesus has lived a perfect life in our place, and that the cross has paid a debt that we owe for crimes to give us new lives that glory in Him rather than what we can come up with on our own to reach out to Him. So, the first statement we want to look at comes from your friend Micah in chapter 17, verse 2. And It's so funny how this story opens. He's an everyday, normal Ephraimite who liked to steal money from his mom. That's the first thing we learn about him. Look at the beginning of chapter 17 again. There was a man in the hill country, so you get who he is. Verse 2, he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and spoke it in my ears, the silver's with me, I took it. This is how the story, like what kind of dysfunctional family story starts with, this is that one time I stole 1,100 pieces of silver from my mom. Micah steals from his mother, and he receives it back when he confesses. He shows no repentance, only self-absorption. So he looks for glory in what his own pleasure, what he can take to satisfy his own pleasure. At some point, he took the silver, and then he heard his mom speak a curse on the one who took it, and apparently out of fear, he confessed and returned the stolen money. As we saw in the Confessions of the Nations chapters before, as a whole, the repentance exhibited by Micah here seems to come out of fear of punishment rather than the humility that the Lord calls us to and responds to. He doesn't call us to simply repent because we're terrified of what God will do to us, but to repent and realizing that what God promises to do to evildoers, we deserve to have happen to us, right? What Jesus did at the cross, he didn't do because he was absorbing so much sin. We can't say that mine was only a small part of that, and I only deserve a small part of what Jesus endured. Rather, what he endured at the cross is how God communicates to us what we have earned before him. And it is gruesome, and it would take an eternity for us. Remember, in this story, we find the characters are looking to worship the Lord and receive the blessing he promises to his faithful people, but they don't go about worship the way he's actually designed to. So Micah's mom responds by removing the curse and pronounces a blessing for her son. She dedicates the money to the Lord for her son. This is going very well, right? She's forgiven her son for taking the money. Oh, I know I uttered a serious curse and probably, you know, terrible murder to the person who stole my money. But since it's my son and since he fessed up to it, I'm going to bless him instead. Very interesting. It sounds like a very godly action until we see what she wanted the silver to be used for. Did you catch that? I wholly devoted that money to the Lord for my son to make a graven image. Not exactly what the Lord's looking for. Micah takes the money, makes a stone idol and a metal idol, seemingly ignorant of the second commandment against making a graven image. And yet, if you're following along with this, when the Levite shows up, Micah says, hey, a Levite, that's the guy I want for a priest. Micah knows some basic things at the very minimum, basic things about worshiping the Lord. Do you think he didn't know the second commandment? I doubt it. I think he was doing this seemingly ignorant, but really in his heart, he knew it was not what the Lord required. So I read from Tim Keller this past week, as I often do. The practical reason making an image is wrong is because in doing so, we reveal one thing about God's character, perhaps his wrath or his kindness or his justice or his patience, and this necessarily conceals the rest of his character. So we know, first off, obviously don't make a graven image. If God tells us not to do something, If we really want to reason, the reason that God said so is enough, right? Because I said so, said every parent 150,000 times, right? If God says it, that's enough for me to say I need to obey it. But Keller, I think, gives us something helpful here. That um, This is what he says. Worshiping God with images reveals an inward spirit in us which does not want to submit to God as he is, but which wants to pick and choose a God who is palatable to us, turning God into a buffet, as it were. To say, you know, if you look, if you think about a buffet trip, which, which is a terrible thing to think about right now, obviously with pandemic and maybe like me, you already thought they were kind of gross to begin with. But to think of, of a buffet and think that there's all this food to choose from and to kind of project that image onto God is to say that here's all the things that God says about himself. Now grab a plate and a fork and start putting on your plate whatever you like. Well, pretty soon the grace section of the buffet is gone immediately, right? And wrath is overflowing, <laughs> Because nobody's going for the green beans. They're going for the ice cream. Things that look good. And so what he's saying here is that we choose a God who is palatable to us. A God that we can say, all right, I can understand this. And that's what Micah's doing when he makes a graven image. He's making an image and he's saying, here's the idol. I get this. I can see it. I can hit it. I can, you know, it's in my house. It's present. I get the idea that God's with me. It is not what God has designed to communicate his presence. What he has designed to communicate his presence is in the end of chapter 18. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but I'm excited about this because it's so awesome how the end of this story, book ends with 31, they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Where was the house of God? At Shiloh. They could go! Lazy. Man. And worse than lazy, but we'll get there. So this is the great damage of the me monster in the life of God's people. I couldn't worship and love a God who condemns people to hell for eternity or who thinks the way I live my life romantically isn't good enough for him or who lets bad things happen to good people. You've heard heard these things before, right? The me monster will stop at nothing to satisfy itself. And in the life of the people of God, it's imperative that even as we explore the wonder of God's kindness, his patience, his overwhelming forgiveness, It's imperative that we not only exalt these truths, but the other things of his justice, his wrath, and his holiness, so that we do not lose those things. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that we create images, at least in our mind, of who God is by overemphasizing something that's true about him. And that's a tricky thing, because is God loving? Say yes, please. Yes. (laughs) He is loving. In fact, First John says, God is, what? Love. It rhymes with love. Love. God is love. The idea of love. People don't understand anything about love if they don't know Jesus, right? Because he is God, and God is love. So, When we, what we're doing that's wrong here is we are perhaps coming with the motivation of saying, I want to explore how wonderful God's love is. And that's a great thing to do, but we must not let that turn into a thought that God is only love because by God being love, he is also by necessity hateful. Can you believe that? The Bible actually says he hates his enemies. He hates evildoers. He hates death. He hates lies. He hates sin because it separates his people from him. God does not look at our sin and say, oh, well, I'm love, so I better love sin and I better love all the terrible things you're doing. No. By necessity, his love for what is good and what he decides is good, right? Because he's the creator. He gets to do that. By necessity, he must hate the things that go against all the goodness that he's designed. Come back to the notes. What's wrong with you? Okay. 1713 will show us how Micah has created an image of God that is palatable to him. And this is no way to realize the glory of the God that he was trying to worship. So Micah's taken steps to build a relationship with the God he wants to worship in his own way. He has a shrine, which is a place to meet God. Again, don't forget, verse 31, there already is that, right? The house of God was at Shiloh. Okay, so he has the shrine. He has an ephod, which is a means to hear from God. Um, Go look in your Bible dictionaries to find out what an ephod is if you don't know because I'm already talking too much here. I can't go into it. His household gods, which is an attempt to visualize. And let's even give him credit. It's an attempt to show respect to God. It's not a good attempt. Finally, he's ordained one of his sons as a priest to function as the operator of all these other things. He set apart and he hoped would be pleasing to God. In verse 6 of chapter 17, we find the first mention of the ominous comment that we've talked about throughout this whole series. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They wanted what God could give them on their own terms and for the glory of their own pleasure. And that is the mark of a me monster. Let's jump down to verse 13. Kind of following the story here, but not entirely here. So um, Micah's view of the Lord, verse 13, is where he has this infamous phrase here. Now I know the Lord will prosper me. Micah's view of the Lord is like a vending machine. He looks for glory in his own credit and his own um, acquired wealth to please the Lord. So the coming of Jonathan the Levite in chapter 17, verse 7, would have probably felt like an act of providence in the eyes of Micah. Though he had ordained one of his sons, we can see he knew that the Lord had actually ordained the tribe of Levi to be the only tribe that priests could come from. So the tribe was allotted 40 cities, spread out evenly among the land the Lord was giving to his people. And this Levite was looking for a place he could be of use. It's not a bad thing. He was looking for a place to provide for himself. He's a normal person. Micah gives him probably the best offer he had heard all day, or maybe even his whole journey from Bethlehem. Stay with me be a father to me. I will give you 10 pieces of silver annually, along with a new outfit each year, and take care of everything you need a place to stay, food, and an opportunity for you to let your heritage be your ticket to an easy life. So Micah kicks out his son from being the priest. That had to be a little bit hard, you got to imagine. And coming to 1713, we read Micah's life verse, as it were. Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Does Micah understand grace? I don't think so. When we say things like, I know the Lord will prosper, I know the Lord will bless, I know the Lord will love me, I know the Lord will give to me, when we start sentences like that and end them with, because I have something, or I did something, or I know something, or I said something, we're completely off. And that's what's so ironic and it's humorous in the middle of this story, because we, you know how this ends up, right? Does the Levite end up staying at Micah's house? He loses the Levite. He loses everything. And one of the lines that we'll look at is when he says, what do I have left to the Danites of all people? It's like he's trying to reason with this tribe who's like, obviously they take whatever they want and then they leave. And he's sitting there like, come on, guys. you got to give me something here. I worked so hard at getting all this set up. Can I at least have one of the graven images? The reason he wants it back so bad is because he thinks at this moment, now the Lord will prosper me because I did this thing. I have this stuff. I got the Levite. And the Lord's clearly on my side. I mean, what are the chances a Levite would be walking down the street one day? Actually pretty good, but even so. So he kicks out his son. He has all this confidence that the Lord's going to prosper him. Interestingly enough, he misses this whole idea of making a graven image and setting up his own sort of um, tabernacle, as it were. It's as if Micah is able to tell himself, I know that the graven image thing will make God unhappy, but I also know that he will be impressed by my taking in a Levite to operate all of my religious trinkets I've amassed. Isn't that interesting? Do you ever tell yourself that the thing in your life that is actually sin is really not all that bad because we have something else to our credit? You know, I might really struggle with this area of sin in my life, but I definitely have this way awesome, awesomer thing over here going on. I'm doing really good at blank. I really am no good at praying, but I read my Bible every day. That's got to kind of even out, right? This is what Micah's doing. It's not what God's looking for. My middle schoolers were like that. On a certain day, I would pass out graded work. And some would look at an F they got on a test and at an A they got on another, which this is only like a few students who can actually accomplish this, by the way. Usually, you know, you're kind of like an A student or an F student. But some of them would actually sit there and look at an A they got on this test and an F they got on this test. And they would say, at least I did well here. No, you still have an F on this test over here. And you might think that they're going to balance each other out, but these are two completely different subjects. They don't communicate with each other but this is the mindset of a middle schooler sometimes when they look at it and they say, I got an A and an F. And I mean, you go home and what do you do? Like, hey mom, I got enough on this paper. I got an A over here. Like a good parent's going to say, I don't care about that A. Let's talk about the F. That's no good. When we allow the me monster to create pet sins that we protect with our lives in our hearts, one of the greatest lies of protecting one area of sin is to put a massive effort of holiness in some outward area of life. And that we use to hide our pet sin in its shade. The worst part is that we are so good at deceiving ourselves that we can say with Micah, now I know the Lord will prosper me, seeing that I have blank. In the midst of our efforts of hiding our sin, we are blind to the truth of what confession actually calls us to and coming clean before the Lord and, this is a harder one, our brothers and sisters in the church. Why do we neglect confession? I think that besides our desire to protect our sin, we fear the condemnation we think we'll find from our godly brothers and sisters. In college, I was a part of a group of guys that worked intentionally at confessing sin and in in the confidence of that fellowship that we created. And what we found inevitably was we would accept one another and be in camaraderie with each other in our weakness. We found in each other not an excuse to continue on in the sin, but to recognize that sin is not something the Lord means for us to face on our own with a brother or a sister who will walk with us and be the hands and feet of Jesus to lead us to the cross and communicate the gospel to us. Confession of sin, repentance of sin. I hate to burst your bubble and my own at this too, but it's not a solo effort. We're not called to live. We're not, we're not able we're not, and I would even say this the Holy Spirit is the most powerful force in the universe, right? He is God, the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity. He lives inside of believers. But I do not believe, if you have access to the church and to fellowship with one another, I don't believe the Holy Spirit's going to empower you to, to face, battle, and conquer sin on your own. I just don't think it's going to happen. Otherwise, why does, why does He give us the church? Does that make sense? That was kind of like a Hail Mary for me um, thought at the moment that's been on my heart quite a bit. But I think it's important. If God calls us to confess our sins one to another, then we shouldn't think, I don't really need to do that. I can just confess to him and the Holy Spirit will clean my heart. All that's true, but I think it needs to include what God calls us to. Got it? Micah didn't want to do this. He was, he was willing to set some other things aside so that you could emphasize what he thought was really important. So, wonder if you have that, friend, if you can trust the Holy Spirit to, as Jesus said he would, convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I prayed about that earlier um, from the Gospel of John in, in our opening prayer, that Jesus said the Spirit would come to convict us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And I believe that the Spirit does that in the Christian's life every day. He convicts us of sin because I am a sinner through and through, but Christ has taken my sin, that I have no righteousness. He convicts us of righteousness. I have no righteousness but that which Christ has given me, a superabounding, peacemaking, restorative grace to bring us back to the family of God. The Holy Spirit comes to convict us of judgment, judgment that I deserve, an eternity of torment and separation from a kind God who has only been good to me and has in fact poured out that judgment on his son, his only son, whom he loves. To return to that idea that I ought to make an image of God I can worship, without things like eternal damnation for his enemies, how can we do that? Because everyone who will suffer eternity apart from the goodness of God is so absorbed with self that they have rejected and hated both God and his indescribable gift of Christ at the cross for them. Micah thinks he has a stockpile of credit that will cover the cost of God's prosperity this is his glory. He doesn't realize that the me monster has become. he has become has destroyed his understanding of God's grace, his goodness to those who are undeserving. Let's jump to eighteen chapter, chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribe of Israel had fallen to them, which is an ironic statement because, of course, if you go back to the book of Judges at the beginning... God had ordained for all the tribes to have land. Dan was not able to drive out the Amorites. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 34. So rather than trust the Lord for what he had promised, they look for glory in what they can achieve apart from him. The story of Dan as a tribe is a very sad one. While other tribes had trouble completely removing the Canaanites from the land that the Lord had given to them, Dan was actually completely pushed back from the land promised them in verse 34 of chapter 1. They were a picture of the past Israel that had no home, but wandered in the wilderness. In fact, the testimony of the spies in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 18 sounds a lot like Joshua and Caleb earlier when they were sent out with other spies by Moses to learn more about the promised land. So a particular group of Danites came to the city where Micah lived, and they ran into the Levite. For some reason, they knew this guy. It says that they recognized their voice. Um, Don't know. I didn't really look further into that, but it's kind of an interesting statement. Um, No doubt he was pumped to get to do his Levite thing. They ask him to inquire of the Lord whether their journey would be successful. And like the cracking open of a fortune cookie, the Levite responds, The journey is under the eye of the Lord. Doesn't really say that he went back and took the ephod and spent time in prayer. He didn't do any of that. He kind of just kind of, you know, gave like his blessing as they walked by. The journey is under the eye of the Lord. More like a fortune cookie than an inquirer of the Lord. It's really vague. Isn't everything to some degree under the eye of the Lord? So after shaking their magic eight ball, the spies go out and come back to report to the rest that Laish was theirs for the taking. They were unable to obey and follow the Lord into the land he had picked out for them, so they had their own plan. They felt good about it. And just as Micah gloried in what he saw as spiritual achievement before the Lord, the Danites were glorying in what they were able to take by force, by the strength of their own hands. After all, there was no king in Israel as the author notes at the start of chapter 18. So everything that they took as far as land, they did with the confidence that no one was going to stop them. The Danites had their own plan, they had their own strength, they had their own mission, and all they needed from the Lord was a thumbs up. and They got it. Jonathan the Levite was happy to oblige. It's funny how we look for validation for the works of the me monster. I'm going to do this thing, I know I really should pray more, but if I can just be confident about it and get validation from someone else that it's okay, then I feel great. And I worry no more about it. I'm no longer worried if it was wrong. It's kind of to go back to that idea of confessing to our brothers and sisters. There's power in that. There's power in our communicating the gospel to one another, just as there's power in us approving of things that are not godly. I'm not saying it's good power, but the truth is it's a lot easier for us to commit sins when other people can tell us, eh, it's no big deal. The me Monster is ready to find an okay and then be ready to feel great and worry no longer about whether it was right or wrong. And I know a guy who made a very rash decision a few years ago to join the military, and all of his reasoning was completely hollow. All he would give up in order to enlist was actually his lifeline to the church and his lifeline to Christ at the time. In our several conversations leading up to his um, enlisting into the army, I eventually had to tell him that he showed no evidence of following Christ in this but simply trying to find a job and trying to find a way to pay for college. What we give up in order to serve our own plans may seem small and may even seem like something we could recover later on if we can just come back to it. We really cannot count on that. If we fail to follow Christ in preference to our own plan, we will not only end up disappointed, but we're putting ourselves in terrible danger of being completely lost. Dan was seeking an inheritance, not the one the Lord had for them, but their own. They gloried in their independence, their ingenuity, and not in the king who would provide far better for them than they could on their own. There's nothing better for you to find in life than in the glory of what Christ has done for you and in the relationship he calls you to with him. Look at verse 19 of chapter 18. This is the second um, encounter of the tribe of Dan with the Levite. And this is where they say, isn't it better for you to serve an entire tribe rather than just a man in his household? The Levite is pragmatic about his decisions. That is, if it feels right, then he should do it. If it looks successful, then it was good. He looks for glory in his own wisdom apart from the king's plan. So the Danites return and they make an offer the Levite can't refuse. Wouldn't it make more sense to come with us and be a priest for an entire tribe? Wouldn't it be better for you? The Levite agrees with this logic, and apparently right on the spot, it said he was pleased. He was like, all right, I'm in, let's go. To him, it was a win-win. He'll be the sole priest to an entire nation. It was like becoming the pope. Anytime someone needed to inquire of the Lord, they would go to him. He would be the man. And this would benefit far more people in his mind. An entire tribe or one man's family? To the me monster, it's a no-brainer. Better for me, I can justify it at the benefit of other people. Where do I sign? Levite was in, ready to totally leave Micah and his family in the dust because he found something that was more satisfying for him and actually something he probably assumed God would be happy about. Go to verse 24 of 18. This is where Micah reappears and they've taken everything from Micah's house. He has no means. It would be like coming into the church and taking every single Bible and all the microphones and anything that we use for worship. Micah comes home and finds everything is gone, even the the priest. He found himself very satisfied with what he acquired. And by verse 24, he's left with nothing in his own estimation. It's humorous and sad, the dialogue that he has with the Danites. What are you doing? What are you doing? kind of just back and forth for a second there. And then they kind of, you know, stick it to him and say, hey, look, you don't want to make us angry. We could kill you. That's how serious we are. We're not giving up the stuff that we took. It's ours now. Deal with it. And Micah, again, stomping his feet probably. What do I have if you take everything? I get it. You're the Danites. I'm just one guy and my neighbors with their pitchforks and torches or whatever. I tried to come up with an angry mob, but obviously it didn't impress you. You got to give me something here. Give me one of those things back, please. No, you don't get any of it. What do I have left? It reflects on his second major statement way back in 1713. Having a Levite was in his mind the key to the Lord prospering him. How can he go on from here? What is left to him? The Levites and the Danites were both looking for and found what they wanted, a place and a means to do what they believed right in their own eyes before God. Micah had it for a moment, and the story leaves him wondering if he'll be able to recover. Because again, what does he even have? What loss would drive you to such a statement, I wonder? Is there something you have now, or perhaps even just have hope in today as the key to a right relationship with the Lord? Have you ever been so entrenched in a ministry that if that ministry were to be taken away from you, you would start to wonder, what do I even have to offer up to the Lord? What can I do to make him happy with me? You might say, no, I believe the gospel. Jesus is my way of, be, of making God happy with me. There's no, Yeah, that's true, but let's get real here. We're still people, and we still live in a world where everything around us calls us to perform, calls us to give, calls us to do, and we get that mindset into Sunday morning and into every moment while we're trying to follow Christ all the time. And it's so easy for us to fall prey to what Mike is saying here. What do I have left? I don't have anything. But what we have is Christ. So this made me think of a funny story from a book called Jesus Made in America. Good recommended book. It's it's very fun to read. Um, There's a story about a woman who came to her favorite Christian bookstore to purchase a Jesus Fish bumper sticker. When she found that they were out, she angrily came to the manager and said, how am I supposed to evangelize now? Isn't that hilarious? I can't evangelize to people now. How are they supposed to know I'm a Christian? Uh, there's got to be some, what do I have? I have nothing left. Micah didn't realize that those things that he had engaged in were wrong, but he wasn't simply taking them on to his, to his worship of the Lord. He felt he had no other way to worship and commune with God without them. So what in your life do you attribute as essential to your walk with Christ that maybe isn't? There's a lot that we're called to do, right? We're called to um, live in God's word and, and let him work that into our lives so that we act according to what we read. We're called to prayer on our own and with other believers so that we might seek God's favor and live on his mission to make him known. There might be some things that we attach onto those things like Jesus bumper stickers, that if they're taken away, might make us feel like, what do we have? So then we come to this last one, which is not a statement of a me monster. It's verse 31 of chapter 18, which I think is kind of the, the tragic irony of this whole thing. They, Dan did this whole, I mean, this is an interesting story that we're going to basically skip all over. But Dan basically has its own crusade to get its own land apart from God, apart from the other nations. They finally have what they have wanted for so long. We even call it, kind of saw hints of it in the previous story with Samson. Samson was a Danite. They, were, they didn't have a land for their own. So they were intermingled with the Philistines. Um, this story probably happened along the uh, lifespan of Samson. But either way, We come to the end of this. Dan has now set up Jonathan, as we understand his name to be, as the the Levite, the priest. His sons will become the priests for this nation. They have the household gods of, of Micah. They have all sorts of things. They are ready. And then the author says, they set up these things as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. The Lord's presence was always supposed to be available to the people of Israel. And at this point, it was at Shiloh. And this is the ironic concluding statement the narrator gives. The rest of the plan of the Danites is complete. God never intended for his people to be separated from him, but that his presence would always be available. The glory of the king was to be in the midst of the people, but in rejecting him, they chose to do what was right in their own eyes. From the fall in the garden, all of humanity has been born in sin and born to be me monsters. Romans 1, and 23 says claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that's what happens with graven images when you make an idol, which we've talked about idols for weeks now, right? It's a major issue in this book. God's people create idols. John Calvin said it. Our hearts are idol factories. The me monster is in here working on the latest one, ready to dish it out and put it on the shelf for me to worship. And what we do when we worship idols is we exchange the glory of God. And that's why we're looking at his glory as the solution to this. Because when we're in his presence and we understand or rather grasp at his glory, we get even a taste of his glory. Idolatry is impossible. Can you imagine thinking back to a passage like Isaiah 6 with the seraphim that are, you know, f- floating around the Lord constantly singing, holy, 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 holy. Could you imagine bringing a graven image into the midst and saying, hey, seraphim, worship this? Do you think they go, oh, what do you have there? No way. They're in the presence of God. I mean, they can't even get another word out except for holy, holy, holy. It's incredible. That's the weightiness of the glory of God. And God's intention in verse 31 here is evident. His intention was for the house of God to be with his people. They needed only to come to him. And they said, sorry, I've got another way. I'm going to create an alternate line. The king of glory is available to us. He's present with his people. Yet too often we adopt our own ideas of how to live. And we apply that to how we relate to him. Rather than coming into his presence to learn from him directly, into his word, into time with prayer, time with other believers, uh, Sunday mornings, all these things that are available to us, so often we want something else. In the message of the gospel, we find that the solution to the problem, the me monsters, is in fact the presence of God. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The presence of God came down. Christ came, the one whom life is all about. The rest of that verse says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the presence of God reveals the glory of God. We need to be in the presence of the Lord to behold his glory. There's no way for us to reach to him. So he has come to us and is with us now and forever, as he promised in Matthew 28, right? I will be with you always. I wonder if that makes your, I don't know, makes you excited in some way. He's going to be with us always. He's with us right now. The idea is not for us to think that if he suddenly became visible, that we'd be surprised. He's with us now. and In every way better. And remember, it's... Sorry, I'm sidetracking here. But you'll be patient with me, right? Um, When Jesus was talking about sending the Holy Spirit and he said, it is better that I go away. Do you remember that? It is better for me to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come with you. Can you imagine being a disciple in that moment and thinking, what could be better than seeing you sitting here with us in church, going to lunch with you? What could be better than that? He says it's better for us that the Holy Spirit come and live inside of us, the presence of God in our hearts, making us new, revealing the glory of God to us. That is even better, and I'm try- just using Jesus' words here, so don't stone me. That's better than if Jesus were physically present here in the way that he was 2,000 years ago. That's what you have, church. That's who you have. That's incredible. That's the presence of God and the glory of God. And this is the message that we carry. We don't carry a message that, you know, we have to, like, convince other people of. We just say, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. And he's available to you. His glory is here. We need to call people to repent, to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their their me-monster lifestyle and trust in Jesus. As a precursor, well, let's look at our reflection questions for a minute, if you will, please. First, do you look to anything other than Christ for God's approval? And boy, that's a Sunday school answer, right? No, Jesus is my only approval. Yeah, but let's get real here for a second. I think we're still tempted to believe that we do or are something that God is impressed with. And that means that he's okay with us. Secondly, have you in any way emphasized a part of God's character in your mind and forgotten another? Have you looked to the easy one, God is love, he's love, he loves everybody, everything's fine, and suddenly you realize that you're believing false doctrine because you have, you have overemphasized something that is, is limitless in understanding. Of course, it's, it's, we're never going to be able to understand God's love, but we overemphasize and we, we reject, we turn away from other truths about him. Is there something in your heart, in your mind, that you've emphasized and forgotten other elements of who God is, his character? Do you make decisions based on the benefit of your own kingdom or of the king's kingdom? When you go about your day, when you go about your life, you make big decisions. What are you thinking about? Are you working towards building his kingdom or yours? And then lastly, do you depend on God, God's presence in your life? Do you depend on that he is with you? And here's a really tough question. I hate asking this because I have to ask myself and I hate the answer that I know I give. If the Holy Spirit wasn't indwelling you right now, would you know the difference? That deserves a couple hums, I think, right? Because it's scary, right? If the Holy Spirit is, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's in you, working in you, changing you, making you more like Christ. I'm not talking about like you have to have, be doing miracles and performing supernatural things all the time, but there's a change because he's in you the Holy Spirit weren't with you right now, would you be able to tell the difference? And I am going to be honest with you. Sometimes I wonder if I would know. Scary. So before we pray, hear from um, this uh, famous hymn writer who says, Dear Lord, the idle self dethrone. The idol is in idolatry. The idle self dethrone. And from our hearts remove. Let no zeal by us be shown but that which springs from love and from love of him alone. Let's pray, and then we'll sing Behold Our God one last time. Lord, John Newton's words should ring in our hearts a little bit as we consider dethroning ourselves from our hearts and and as we consider that there are things that we do and motivations that we have that are only self-serving. Lord, remind us that in your presence is the fullness of joy that you are love, that you abound in mercy and kindness, that those things are true. And we have no need to fear being dissatisfied when we are with you. Father, would you reveal to our hearts your presence? Just let us start there. Just let us remind, be reminded and remember and realize, open our eyes to the fact that you are here with us. And yet we work so hard to get to you sometimes. And we work in all sorts of wrong ways. Reveal to us the truth of your word to our hearts so that we might change the things we need to change, that we might see you in in all dimensions of who you are, Lord, that we can't grasp or fully understand your justice and your patience, for instance. We thank you that you are those things. We thank you that you have given us your word so that we could know the way, the truth, and the life when it comes to understanding you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you, because apart from him, we have nothing. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, we confess we can do nothing. Don't let us convince ourselves we can do anything. Let us look to you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.